So, you know, even though I think one commonality that has stuck with me with over the last 35 years has been the fact, or it probably actually predates that, you know, since the time I was probably in college, has been the role of software um, in my life. The diversity and inclusion comes to play in situations like this. The diversity of people, the inclusivity of the fact that, hey, you know what, we trust the organization, we trust the people to go work on this and come back and tell us what is, what's the reality is a bi-directional trust. And you don't build it when you need it, you build it ahead of time. So when situations like these arise, you're able to tap into those resources that, you know, that's available to you. And these are people who have gone through a learning exercise. They know how to work together. The relevancy of you as an individual only comes in when your title and your company and your card that you which is not the case. Everybody is an individual. Everybody has their own professional growth and they have their own you know, experiences, which are extremely valuable. And then the question is, who are you? What is your brand? What do you stand for? Hello, my listeners. Welcome back to yet another episode of Inspire Someone Today, wherein we call in inspirers to create those ripples of inspiration. Joining me today is Ramkumar Narayanan, NASCOM Executive Council per, uh, member as well as chairperson for uh, NASCOM Deep Tech Council. More than that, an industry veteran with over three decades of uh, industry experience, a wonderful people leader and much, much more. It's an absolute joy to have Ram joining us on this version of Inspire Someone today. Welcome to the show, Ram. Thanks for having me here. Thank you. Like I mentioned, uh, you have been in the industry, seen many versions, many parts of the industry in your uh, long uh, career, over three decades, Ram, from automobile to cloud to Gen AI and much, much more. How have you seen all of these things that has evolved? What has been the hurdles that you have personally encountered along the way in this uh, checkered career that you have had? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I don't think about it as a you know, planned career, if you may, right? I mean, some things happen for a reason, some things happen because you want it, some things happen because you don't, you kind of put into situations where, uh, you know, where, where it happens to you. So, you know, even though I think one commonality that has stuck with me with over the last 35 years has been the fact, or it probably actually predates that, you know, since the time I was probably in college, has been the role of software um, in my life. Right in my professional life, if you may. Even though I'm a mechanical engineer, um, as we were chatting offline, um, I started my career in the auto industry, designing. You know, my whole background was in multi-body dynamics and designing suspension mm -hmm. systems. But it was all in the you know using software. So in the sense that I, in the early part of my career, I wrote a lot of software that designed and for design and simulation of suspensions. So it was all digital. And it was a very interesting period of time. This is in the late 80s to probably the, you know, the, the 90s, all of the 90s, where um, computers were being utilized for more than just some tool that people used on the side. So in the auto industry, it was becoming a lot more um, you know, imperative to start to use software much more strategically rather than tactically. And the reason for that was very simple. The US auto industry was lagging behind the Japanese and uh, they were struggling for survival. And the only way that could come out, you know, out of that uh, uh, 
you know, the death spiral, if you may, was to start to get a lot more efficient and in terms of shortening the time to produce a new vehicle. And uh, there was no choice for them other than to start to use software as a mechanism. So it was an interesting time for me, you know, as a mechanical engineer uh, who's transitioned. And very interestingly, my final year project um, at a time when I was graduating from college was in a computer-aided design scenario. So, you know, my final year project was to write the software that uh, took essentially the ITI specifications of how to design a spur and helical gear in those days and computerize it. So the interesting part was while our project guide during the final year of engineering was very supportive, when we actually went to the finals, you know, round Viva and all that, you know, defending our project, the professor was from IIT Madras from Mechanical Engineering who had no idea about software. So it was, uh, you know, we had to justify why we did something in software as mechanical engineers. So that was, you know, so the reason I say that is, you know, I have seen this transition from that time till till where we are today, right? Um, and it's been a very interesting journey overall in terms of how these things have transpired. Um, fast forward to today, right? I mean, we are talking about generative AI and a lot of new technologies. But if you look at those years, you know, over the last three decades, uh, technology has evolved, right? I mean, technology has always been evolving and I think it's evolved faster and faster. Every wave of technology um, has, has kind of accelerated, you know, I started in an era where you had to install software with diskettes on a PC. You know, now you tell somebody what's a diskette and you know, everybody kind of, I was talking to a bunch of college students the other day and I had to tell them, you know, that icon where you do a file save in, uh, you know, <laughs> in your software that actually used to be a physical thing that we used to use, right? So, so I think we have evolved from there to the web era, to the mobile era, to where we are today, we're talking about AI, right? And I think the, uh, I think the thing that has stood well, at least for me is, Every day, you know, you come in with a learner's mindset. You say, okay, let me not carry the biases of how I know things work, even though you, it's very hard sometimes to unroll it. We'll talk about this in the context of generative AI. But, um, but there are times when you have to set aside your own biases, your own, you know, I know this stuff, you know, kind of thing and say, okay, what's this, what's new about this? And what are its implications? You know, the, the, the what and the why become much more important than the how. The how has to follow, but... The water, you know, questioning the what and the why becomes uh, the mechanism to actually learn about new trends, new markets, new growth, you know, all that other stuff. And now, as you kind of look back at all of this, there's so much of wisdom that is kind of coming through that because you have kind of lived through it, experienced it, all of it. But help me understand, growing up, uh, was this what you were kind of aspiring to be? Was this not exactly to the same uh, shape and form? But in some ways saying that, okay, this is what I aspire to become. So how was growing up years for Ram was and what shaped you to kind of be the professional, the person that you have shaped out to be today? Yeah, I think my choice of mechanical engineering stemmed from that. You know, I used to love building things. So, you know, whether it was a mechano set to put together structures, you know, I kind of followed diagrams. Or Legos, uh, Legos existed even when I was a kid, right? So, <laughs> so I think I, I loved building things, and I, I loved kind of watching large machines operate and and all that kind. Of, you know, I I also was also a little bit right brain. Uh, you know, I, I had the creative kind of a thing. I used to do a lot more sketching and kind of do those kinds of things, right? So the the combination of the two became the reason why I thought design, uh, mechanical design. I mean, in those days, the choice was either go to electrical engineering, electronics, mechanical. And mechanical was a deliberate choice for me. And I love to see large machines. I, I wanted to know how to design large machines. 
and that's what took me to make it. So, so you're right in the sense that it it took me. That's one one trajectory. The other one, I was a voracious reader, uh, even as a child. Good or bad, I never constrained myself on what I read. You know, it was it could be fiction, sometimes it could be non-fiction, which I couldn't understand anything, but uh, I would still read it. Um, and I had this notion that every book I picked up, I had to finish. So, as a lot of these things also came through, and I used to love you know science fiction and kind of imagining things. You know, one of the likes things, and that's the reason why you see so many books behind me. I'm not a big on uh, digital reading. You know, I read a lot, even online, but I prefer my books to be physical uh, because I like flipping through them. I like going back. I like looking at them. I like rereading them sometimes if it interests me. So reading was always a key part of what I did, uh, and that fired up my imagination. Everything from, you know, reading, you know, Western, you know, like Louis Lamour Western novels to, you know, things fiction of all kinds to, you know, some non-fiction, but. But I think that fired up my imagination in those days, right? In the sense of, as, as a child, you know, in those days, there was no, you can't watch TV, you know, you didn't have all these options of watching online or, That's or right. TV or anything. So it was actually not a bad thing to have an imagination that says, hey, you know, how could this have looked uh, in those days? Right? So all of this probably come together. I mean, like I, I like to describe everybody's life as a tapestry. You know, that's why it's unique. You know, it, it consists of threads of experiences that everybody weaves for themselves, right? So that's why no two people can ever look alike. It's very hard to copy somebody's trajectory in life. Ditto. Because your experiences, my experiences, my cultural background, your cultural background, you know, growing up, family, there's so many things that shapes an individual. But the strength of that individual is that shaping, right? Uh, how that comes together. So that was what growing up and that dictated to some extent the life I've lived, right? I mean, I started off why I became an engineer. Um, and why I stuck to engineering for a while, right? I loved machines and the, the designing suspension systems was an intellectual exercise. But then software has always played a role. And after my MBA is when I transitioned to the tech career. And that time, the 90s were a heady time, right? I mean, I described the mid-90s as what it is today with generative AI. The web was just coming up. You know, it's not that the internet was new, but uh, it had finally democratized itself. And consumers could start to see what it meant right for them so all of that transition you know keeps getting played out right again and again we went through that with mobile you know the advent of feature phones to smartphones and apps etc that you know has now become such an integral part of what we are and how we operate and um, i think ai is on that cusp of on that on that trajectory now so that's why it's very exciting absolutely uh, you did mention about making those shifts and the changes that is happening in the industry and for that matter the changes is happening across all the industry but the quantum of change that is happening is more predominant in the it industry so two-part question here one how have you embraced some of these changes what have you kind of seen coming in and how have you kind of readjusted yourself to these changes happening in the industry two as a leader it's just not only you adjusting to the change, but rallying your organization, your teams to embrace that particular change. Yeah. So how have you kind of straddled that particular piece as yeah. well? So look, I mean, every shift in technology and has, has been um, seasonal in some sense, right? Uh, over all these years. The, uh, the way I think I would describe this is... Um, the shifts in technology happen faster for a reason because the adoption curve reduces, you know, with every shift that happens. You know, it took a long time for 100 million people to start using the internet. It took a few weeks for 100 million people to start using ChatGPT. 
So I think uh, the shifts are happening faster and faster. And that's just because the, the avenues for people to experience it are, are accelerating. So that's one side to it. The other side to it is I've been fortunate enough I personally to having worked for the last 23 years for some iconic technology company. After, my, after the auto industry, after my MBA, I joined Microsoft at a very interesting period of time when Microsoft you know, was itself going through a lot of changes internally in terms of how it was starting to view it, you know, its role in the, in the larger industry. Followed by a Yahoo, which was an aging internet giant, but it still had a lot of interesting assets and a lot of interesting future in terms of user base and how, how it was transacting. So it was a massive learning experience for me to work for a company like that, even though the company itself was on its downward swing uh, during that period of time. But that also was even more challenging because trying to maintain the company's position in the market at a time when it was getting a lot of other challenges was, you know, was an interesting proposition. From there, I went on to eBay, um, which was an e-commerce space, and uh, it taught me a lot. I, I managed a global team focusing on what we call the monetization platforms and set up the India Center for them. So it was a dual kind of a challenge where we were setting up the center in India, and I was managing a global team uh, on the heart and soul of how eBay made its money. Right. Uh, and at a time when India was going through its e-commerce revolution, right? if, you, if you look back in time, uh, that's the time when e-commerce is really kind of starting to take off in India. So the interplay of all of this is very interesting. And, uh, and now, of course, with VMware, it takes me back into the enterprise space where I was during Microsoft days. And, uh, and for the last five and a half years, it's been a blast taking the India center for VMware to its next level. You know, with its people, that's where the people angle comes in and looking at it from the larger industry and context and the role that the company was you know, focused on uh, in terms of the global charter, as well as how the India Center was playing its role in all of that. So the large, long answer to the short question was, technology trends um, during this time was very interesting to track and be part of, right? Uh, whether it's in India or otherwise. So that's the other angle for me, other than my you know, day jobs and professional experience of the companies I worked for, I've been involved in the Indian ecosystem for a very long time. You know, you mentioned my NASCOM, uh, you know, role right now. But I've been working in the Indian ecosystem. You know, I moved back to India in 2005, 18 years ago. But uh, for the last 16, 17 years, I've been involved at many levels in the larger product ecosystem in India and its evolution. So I've seen that grow in parallel as well to a lot of the other things that have happened. But what that has allowed us to do and allowed me to do is bring the market trends into the organizational growth and challenges right, that come in. So that's where the people angle, how do you kind of look at melding, helping people understand what is happening in the market, how it is happening in the company, how do you help these two things matter to each, you know, how do they work together, and hence what is their role in the organization. So transitioning from kind of the technology trends and my experience with that, to how do you look at organizations and leading organizations through these kinds of changes right? that happen? First of all, I think it starts with trust. That organization needs to have, the people in the organization need to have trust in the organization. And the organization needs to build a trust in the people. Right? I mean, it's a bi-directional trust-building exercise. And that starts with relationships. It starts with understanding and hearing what people are really kind of wanting to do, where is their aspirations and linking that to what the company wants to do, right? And be able to do that effectively is, I think, and I, I, I don't think it, uh, you know, first of all, I think the top-down, you know, command and control model is dead, right? As a leader, you have to understand. 
you cannot operate in that model anymore. And the more you operate, the more chafing that happens. And, and every younger generation, every next generation that comes up, you know, moves further and further away from you if you try to do that model. And we've seen examples of this in the market, right? Where command and control people trying to impose will on others, it just doesn't work. I mean, the reaction to that is, is not great, right? So trust building is a bi-directional exercise and it needs to be done. So that's one. Second is you need, like I said, be able to effectively link what people are doing with their day job to what is happening in the company, to what is happening in the market. You need to have that ability to connect that uh, viewpoint, right? Because without that, uh, it's a, you know, people look at it as a job, right? I mean, I get paid to do what I do. It's a, you know, it's a nine to five. You know, somebody tells me what to do, I go do it. In the tech sector, you cannot operate that way. A lot of organizations still do, unfortunately, but you cannot operate that way. You, if you will build an effective global ready organization, you have to be able to effectively link the role of everybody in the organization. It's not about just engineers or not. You know, every single person in that organization needs to be effectively be able to say, my role is this, and here's why I do it, right? So if you can do that effectively, I think you start to build the foundation of a strong organization. Then you have to be able to link people to their growth. Every or no organization, I mean, you mentioned that technology organizations are the ones which are seeing a lot of change. I actually disagree with that, uh, unfortunately, because every organization is in change. Technology, in your role, I'm sure you see this on a daily basis. Technology is a non-sequitur now in any company. I mean, it doesn't matter what organization, what function you're in. Technology is going to play a big role in what you do. And it's going to have a you know, disruptive effect on you if, you don't, if you're not focused on it, right? In terms of its implications for your business. So every organization needs to be able to look at it from this lens and be able to connect that back and make people comfortable. I mean, some organizations will be disruptive because it's actually, we're talking about some of these new technologies replacing people. Um, it may not happen at the scale that is being feared, but, uh, it may, but, but change is non-negotiable at this point in time. So getting people ready, capability, building their, helping them build capabilities that will help them mitigate those kinds of changes that is happening in their lives. And some of that capability building can be, you know, can be formal learning. You know, obviously companies have these kind of L&D programs. But a lot of it is happens because of peer learning. Can you create avenues for people to come together and solve problems in a way in which they can learn doing that? See, that also reduces the fear because people are learning it not in the context of, hey, I have to protect my job. But they do it in the context of saying, look, I'm learning something new by doing this. And hence, I'm getting better at what I do, right? And be able to do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But when you say peer learning, is it like do, doing projects together? Is it working on uh, initiatives which is beyond what you do on a day-in, day-out basis? That is correct. That is correct. Yeah. Okay. Because it's, it's you know, some of it will come back to your day job because you just kind of learn something new to bring it back. But a lot of it is what you suggest, right? Which is, can you create communities of people, project teams? You know, can you open up avenues for them? So as a leader you have to kind of start to watch for those kinds of opportunities that come up. One example of this is when generative AI came up a year ago, right? It didn't matter whether you work for a technology company or a non-technology company. Suddenly, this thing was in everybody's hands and everybody had to understand, how, does this have a meaning, right? A technology company had to figure out, hey, what does this mean for my customers and what does it mean for my products that I'm going to sell to them? For the customer side, it was, hey, you know, what is this thing? You know, how do I need to make sense of it? Every boardroom discussion was that, right? Well, am I going to be get hit by the tsunami called generative AI that's going to come and affect me? 
So even if you are an advertising company, you have to figure out what the hell was this and how do I make sense of it? How do I, can I use it? Can I not use it? Is it going to come and destroy my business? Everybody started talking. So I think, uh, you know, that is a great opportunity, you know, to take your, some of your brightest people and say, look, come together. Let's go do an exercise. Let's create a project, set of projects that will let you go test it out, let you go do this. And then you come back and tell us, how does this work? So it doesn't need to be that the management needs to sit in its ivory tower and say, oh, what does this mean to me? It says, involve the organization in this. This is where my point about trust comes in. If I, as a leader, trust my organization, trust the people that I have there. And those people say, yeah, you know what? The leader is asking us or the, or the management team is asking us to go off and work on this project. I know that they are willing to back me up on this when it comes back. They are not going to kind of, you know, throw it under the rug. If it's inconvenient, they are willing to do this. Now, suddenly that trust building exercise that I said was a foundational element starts to play a role now in terms of how you how you yeah. help people get through this, right? And any kind of, anytime you do inclusive exercises with your people, it is not a slogan to, to do, you know, diversity and inclusion. The diversity and inclusion comes to play in situations like this. But diversity of people, the inclusivity of the fact that, hey, you know what, we trust the organization, we trust the people to go work on this and come back and tell us what is, what's the reality is a bi-directional trust. And you don't build it when you need it. You build it ahead of time. So when situations like these arise, you're able to tap into those resources that, you know, that's available to you. And these are people who have gone through a learning exercise. They know how to work together. They're good at picking up an open-ended problem and working on it. And it doesn't matter where, which part of the organization they come from. You know, you could be in finance, you could be in marketing, you could be in engineering, you could be in, you know, real estate, right? You could be managing the real estate portfolio. But these are all bright people. And the more you can trust them to come together and solve larger problems for the organization, the better off you are as, an, as a company. Great. So there is trust, there is clarity, there is focus on individual development, which helps one to kind of embrace what are changes coming in their way. And there's inclusivity. Not to lose sight of his inclusivity, because I think the inclusiveness happens is where I think the strength of the organization comes. And Ram, one of the piece that has happened while we talk about change, there's also some bit of cacophony around it, right? So a couple of years back, there was RPA, automation, metaverse, now Gen AI. Yeah. God knows what, what's next. As a leader, how do you kind of set yourself away from the noise and focus on what needs to be focused? As an individual you're asking or as, a, as an organization? Both, both. Okay. What is so your think... tips for people listening to it so that they can kind of cut the noise? And as a leader, what do you kind of kind of guide other leaders to do yeah i i think that just comes from you know being involved right um, at some point you start to say okay i can't be in everything i'm a, i'm not a big fan of boiling the ocean i mean yes there is a lot coming at you and it is noisy it's messy you know there are all kinds of schools of thought all that happens but some of this starts with saying you know developing your own capabilities to analyze situations right and maybe you know my background and this is where i think i would suggest that my mba helped i mean of course i'm not saying mba is the only avenue to do this but when i when i did my mba as an engineer i transitioned to becoming a management person and uh, i think the biggest thing that helped me was how to analyze situations how to break down a problem how to you know how to look at the like i go back to this point i made about what and the why so irrespective of what that noise is, it, it gives me a framework. I mean, it works for me. I'm not saying it works for everybody. It gives me a framework 
to say is this of interest to me is this of any implication to me personally does it you know is does it give me a new avenue a new tool a new you know uh, out thing that will help me in my role that i do and also in the people that i work with is there a way for me to explain to them how to look at this right so some of this is is just kind of leading a diverse perspective on the topic and some of it is I mean, i'll give you one example crypto you know i still today i don't you know while i'm sure there's a lot of people who are experts on crypto and uh, you know they know it very well i for one never resonated with it. i mean I, it, it's it's one of those things i'm not saying it's right or wrong i'm just saying for me personally the whole web3 and uh, nfts and web, you know all the crypto thing that uh, that was making the rounds and a lot of noise around it it didn't make me wake up and say look this is something that i need to dig in and kind of get and become you know much better at understanding it yes i understand i took the time to read through it in terms of kind of following what it was doing but it never really but whereas when i saw chat gpt okay i mean ai has been in that in you know ever since i don't know 50 60 years 70 years ai has always been talked and there's been a lot of movement on ai I mean, machine learning and ai as a technology and industry leader i've always been tracking ml for example you know every company i work for has always had some element of you know using machine learning for solving their business problems but when chat gpt first when i saw it in november it launched last november i think i i saw it being launched and i said okay what is this and i i used it the day after it was launched uh, that was my first foray into it it said for me it was wow okay not because it was producing poetry on one end and was able to do other things right maybe it is just you know my own bias you know so I'll, this is where i think the bias aspects kicks in to me the feeling i got was when i saw the mosaic browser for the first time in probably the mid 90s and i was using links in you know in the early days of the internet i you know links had launched already so it was basically a text based ability to web, to browse the web so you know you you type in command line prompts to actually browse the web right the first four years but when um, when i when the mosaic browser was released by uic and I, i i was working in the auto industry and the company i was at ford and ford was actually quite liberal about allowing their the people working there to use the internet on the company you know access to the internet so we were able to download the mosaic browser and you know pull it up and i was like and i you know the the url that i was browsing using my uh, links browser and i typed it into the into the to the bar and and the page showed up right so hey what is this thing right what is http you know, how do you build this you know how do you start building a web page and um, and i think to me the when i use chat gpt for the first time um, i think that's the kind of the mental model that suddenly popped in my head hey this thing is now useful okay and now it is going to get democratized now every individual so it's no longer about uh, you know a small group of people who know about ai or machine learning or who are tech, you know who are very good at doing this taking large amounts of data and training it to get results it is suddenly in the hands of people and once that genie is out of the bottle it is very hard to put that back in and now this could be you know it's a wide implication wide a wide variety of people could start using it and it happened right within you know that's why it reached a million i think within the first Two three days and then um, and then it reached 100 million, the fastest ever for any technology to get adopted at that scale. Other than Threads, but that was a bit of a cheating by Meta when they launched Threads on top of Instagram, right? But uh, so I, I would I would discount that a bit. But uh, so for so suddenly it woke up everybody's imagination of what what is possible. And 
frankly, the hype curve was went through that at a much faster pace than what internet did. I mean, in the late 90s, you know, that's why the whole uh, internet uh, bubble, you know, kind of grew, right, in the late 90s was because every business was suddenly an internet business. Everybody was doing it. You know, uh, what later became IoT was being discussed in the late 90s. You know, refrigerators talking to the internet, which will order your, you know, groceries for you automatically. These use cases were being discussed, you know, in, in the late 90s. So, but the thing is, this had the propensity for that at a much faster pace. Because everybody had a phone in their hand, they could start using it. So, what I'm trying to tell you is, that is my personal filtering that says, hey, you know what? This technology, it could be useful for others. It's just not, it doesn't resonate with me. And this thing does. And for me, then the question is, what does it mean for the business that I work for or where I work in and the people around me? How can I explain it to them? You know, and sometimes I don't need to explain it, right? I, I, this is where I think I said, you know, let others who are better than you, who are smarter than you go and go and play at it and come back and tell you what it's like. So it's also an aspect of saying, I don't have all the answers. You know, and there are people who are better than me and going and finding these answers. Can you bring them to the tent and have them go do this and learn from it? Because that gives you the diversity and the you know and the variety of that could potentially come back again. And then you look at it and go, okay, wow, you know, it can do this. That's interesting. You know, what more can it do? And uh, and I think that's how I learn and that's how I I look at technology trends. Yeah, I think the uh, other side on elements to that is having that curiosity and having that ability to learn from other sources as well, multiple sources, just not yeah. what I learn is how I interpret it, but what I, and where I learn from and whom I learn from. Yeah, the way I describe that is you need to have a point of view. You need to develop a point of view, but hold it lightly. Right? You need to have a strong point of view, but hold it lightly. And, and be ready to, you know, change it, throw it out the door and reframe it, rethink it. Because... I think the point you're making about curiosity and all that, it is about developing a point of view. Curiosity is not just about kind of poking at things and saying, walking away. Right? It's also about saying, okay, what does this mean? Why would it be important for me? The how is later, right? I mean, the how we'll get to, how is part of, you know, how you kind of kick the tires, you know, you get your hands dirty, get, get going. Right? So, but I think that's the important part of developing a point of view is start with curiosity. Secondly, it starts with curiosity, but it rapidly transitions to saying, what does this mean for me or people who I work with or I live with, you know, people around me? And then form a point of view and then test it out, right? You know, and I'm very not shy about <laughs> espousing my point of view. And it's okay, right? Because people will poke back at me or, you know, show me the mirror or and do all that. As long as they're doing it from the right intent and they're doing it with the right, uh, you know, their point of view, there is a learning opportunity for for both parties, and and so there is no ego in this, right? In that point. Yeah. And talking about point of view, Ram, you have a point of view on building portfolio carriers. Tell us a bit more about that point of view and why is it more important in the world that we are in today? Yeah, I mean, I in some ways I wish I had learned it, but in, you know, if I look back on my life, right, I've always had a portfolio in some sense. I didn't call it that. I didn't even know it was called that until I met my my ment one of my mentors who framed it so nicely and wrote a book around it. But I think the innate curiosity, kicking the tires all the time. So even when I was when, when I was in college a student, uh, or I was in the workforce, I've always kept side projects, right? 
whether it is more formal or informal, I've always had things going on, multiple things going on in my life. I mean, I, there was obviously a primary one which paid my bills and you know gave me a salary and all that kind of stuff. But I've always been a fan of trying out multiple things, you know, all the time. Just keep something boiling, right? Some areas of interest boiling for me personally. So I have side projects and I have you know things that I do. That has helped me be able to weather changes that have come up also. You know, not everything that happens in your personal or professional life is always up and to the right, right? I mean, there's always challenges that come up. But I think what has helped me mitigate that is that, right? Having those other avenues, having, uh, you know, relationships with people, networks that I can tap into, talk to, right? Not, not build those networks when I needed them, but when I didn't need them so that I can tap into them uh, when I needed to get answers or have somebody go talk to when things change. So I think that's a very important thing that everybody needs. So I wish I had learned this earlier in my life in some ways. Right? How do you build these networks and things? But uh, but nevertheless, I think it's an important piece. And that allows you to then start to examine options in front of you, you know, when things change. Right? Um, and so I don't know if I want to call that a portfolio life, but keeping those different avenues active is important. And even today, you know, even, even at this stage, I do my day job and I have that, but I also do a lot of other things in the ecosystem. I get involved with it, which gives me a, a set of perspectives, which I don't get by just working for one company because it opens me up to a diverse set of people and thoughts and ideas. And, uh, and you know, it gives me another avenue to work with other people on right, in the ecosystem. And for that, I have to say that, first of all, I'm very fortunate to have that opportunity. And, uh, and some of it is serendipity. You know, I didn't ask for some things, but they came my way. And, and the question is, are you open to take grabbing those when they come by? Or do you turn everything off, turn everything away, saying, no, you know, I, this is what I do and that's all I describe. You know, I hold myself in a very rigid framework. I don't. You can call it whatever you like, but that's how I do. And the combination of having that portfolio career, portfolio life to designing something like a gap year. So you you hear about gap years more in the universities, more a Western concept, but it's soon catching up uh, over here as well. It's no longer taboo. I think gap year is seen more constructively, more positively. Like you said, people use this as an opportunity to build those portfolio careers, to build other avenues than what was possible earlier on. So your take on gap year, you yourself had a gap year. So your learnings from it and your take on uh, how is it important? Is it important? And what time in somebody's career can one consider this? Yeah. So in my case, um, it was thrust upon me <laughs> in some sense. Right? Uh, I was working for eBay and uh, it was in the end of 2016, eBay decided to exit India. And uh, and so the choice in front of me was was not too many options. And when they exited India, they sold off the business, they exited the development center. So it was, in some ways it was thrust upon me. And at that time, I had been working for about close to 30 years, 28 years or so. And I had never taken a break. I mean, I've done my own entrepreneurial gigs. I have worked for companies. But all of these was one continuum, right? There was almost no break. In it, right? uh, it just went one after the other. When this came up, to some extent, it was, that was where I think the, my support system helped me. Because it was a chance to go and talk to a set of people to say, hey, you know what, this is coming up. How do I deal with this? How do I think about this? And I got very good advice from a number of people, but it was not the same advice. Different people, you know, talked about it in different ways. Some people had been through this kind of challenges. 
they said, look, there's always a life after this. So don't get so caught up in it that, uh, you know, you, you don't see other options in front of you. Some people said, you know what, it's a great opportunity for you to take a step back and decide what you want to do next. Of course, some people said, oh, don't take a career break. You know, it, it, you may not be able to come back into the workforce. Yeah. You, you, in India, particularly, it has not looked, the gap in your resume is not looked upon kindly. And, uh, and so, so I got a variety of offers, offer things, but it was nice because some of these people also came up and said, Hey, look, you know, I'm looking for some help. Would you, would you be interested in coming and working with me on something? Right. So I, what I landed up was while I decided that, okay, you know what, I'm not in any hurry to get back into the workforce. And some of it was also because, you know, that experience I had working for that organization at the time, I had set up their presence in India and then I had to shut it down. So it was, as a professional, it's quite traumatic. A lot of people only talk about the things that they build, right? And I'm a builder, right? Get, don't get it wrong. But I was also put into a situation where I had to now close it down. And that is sometimes as a professional, it hits you, right? It, the, the, the aspect of saying, hey, you know what, what happened here? Was it my fault? You know, I was the leader, right? At the end of the day, everybody looks to you. Did I do something wrong? Was it, you know, but what I think some other well-wishers told me is don't take it so personally. You know, sometimes things happen for you, which is beyond your control. Be able to differentiate and let go if, uh, you know, if it is not, you know, you have to be very clear about what's in your circle of influence and circle of decision-making. Some things are not, and don't make that a personal thing. And I think that was great advice. And uh, all of this combination of things, you know, allowed me to say, look, I want to go do a bunch of things. Uh, let me go try out a few things and see what happens. And that became a one and a half year journey. And uh, while it was not, but what that allowed me to do was one, get back to things I love doing. You know, I'm a product, in the last 23 years, if somebody asked me, what are you at your core? I say, I'm a product leader, right? I, I'm a product manager, an engineer turned product manager, learned, you know, turned <laughs> a person who builds organizations and matures organizations. So the heart of it was that. And this allowed me to go and work with some, you know, startup companies and help them with product strategy. It allowed me to go work with a with a large Indian conglomerate on a division of theirs that they had recently acquired, and they were trying to you know put a digital strategy around it. So, and then I worked with a couple of others on some consulting projects. So it suddenly allowed me to get back to doing things to get over what I call the toxicity of large organizations, because the the higher you are up in an organization, the less you do in, on a day to day basis, right? I'm not saying you know you're wasting your time. But your ambit of control reduces dramatically, right? You don't do things anymore. You tell people to do something and they go off right. and do it. You know, you delegate, right? I mean, obviously you hold the bigger picture in your mind, but you're no longer hands-on as, as much as somebody with an which is the need of the organization. It's not, it's nothing wrong. That's what it is. But this gave me a chance to step back and try to get back to doing things on it. And also get back to things that I found joy to doing. But the side... One of the big things that happened, not a site, it's, it's one of the core things that happened. It also helped me refine in my own mind what I really like doing at this stage of my life. You know, where is it that I brought the maximum amount of value to people? And uh, that defined, so when I joined VMware five and a half years ago, uh, I had a fair amount of clarity in my mind. Why would I take a role with another large company? Okay, when I was coming out of a one and a half year large break, company. Yeah. And so I would, it was, there was a fair amount of clarity in my mind why I was taking the job. And 
right through the last five and a half years, that part of it has stayed constant. Okay, why I took the job? Why why that particular organization? And uh, why is it that it has reached a stage now where okay, you know, it may be potentially time to move on? And uh, that clarity, I think, in my mind, emerged during that break because it allowed me to try out different things. It allowed me to say, okay, you know, you know. Otherwise, what happens is you're very confused. You know, too many things are crowding around you. You know, and you tend to do a knee-jerk reaction of, hey, you know what? I need to do something now. You you get into a little bit of a panic mode of saying, you know, I, I can't be idle, right? I have to find my next job. I need to do this. But uh, this allowed me to discover that part. So so I think that was to me the biggest thing, and it also made me comfortable with the fact that I can operate without an identity that is tied to an organization. I think that detachment is very profound, right? It is. It is. I, I mean, you'd be very surprised. I mean, I don't know, uh, Shikant, if you've taken a break in your career, but uh, if somebody asks you, what do you do? Well, your first answer is, I am this title and this Your title. Right. Your title, your company, you know, that associate, and that's what it, the society, the social network around you, the physical social network around you expects. They want you to have the title. The relevancy of you as an individual only comes in by your title and your company and your card that you, that you have, which is not the case. Everybody is an individual. Everybody has their own professional growth and they have their own you know, experiences, which are extremely valuable. And then the question is, who are you? What is your brand? What do you stand for? And a lot of times as professionals, we don't get the time to sit back and make that, you know, understand that. People think they do, but, but still when they fall back on that, that professional title and all that kind of stuff. To me, that was the hardest thing to unwind after almost 30 years of working. I've always had that, right? I mean, I always had a badge, whether it was my own. I, I was an entrepreneur for about seven years and that was still my company, but that was my identity was tied to that or to the, any of the other companies that I worked for. So this allowed me to separate the two. Yes, my relevancy, my in certain situations may come from my role, my position, my title, my company that I work for, but hold that lightly because that's not, you know, it's likely to change. It is not a constant. It's not a given. And I think mm. it's important for everybody to understand what is the value that they bring to the table for themselves. What's their brand? How do they handle themselves? You know, a lot of times they say culture is when nobody, you know, how you behave and nobody's looking at you. And I think it becomes even more stark when you do, when you step back from a corporate role of many years. So all of that was helpful. This kind of a break was helpful in helping frame. It also helped me discover what I did well. You know, one of the things I discovered working with startups is while I can bring value to them at some level, a lot of it is I come from a, a perspective and a point of view which may be more applicable to a company that's not in a very early stage of its life. Which is more mature. Yeah, I had to adapt for that, right? Because sometimes your expectations of what when you're working with somebody is, hey, you know, why is this person not even thinking this way? And you have to step back and say, that's not where they are in their trajectory. You have to calibrate that. It allowed me to do that, but it also allowed me to say, look, my strength is in, in building or turning around large organizations. And that's okay. Both can exist. Both can coexist. But if I were to spend a majority of my time on something, where would I be most effective? And that was, in my mind, it was in a, still in a larger organization, right? Where I could bring a different perspectives. I had the resources to work with. I had the you know, resources to mold at one level and all that kind of stuff. So... I'm not, uh, you know, when people ask me, oh, do you, do you miss doing another startup? I don't. 
you know, because I get that by working with a lot of, you know, really energetic and bright founders who are doing the right thing for themselves and helping them at one point. But at a personal level, I'm still a large company guy. You know, my strength is orchestrating large companies, right? And be able to take them to the next level or turn things around or take, a, take an existing business and kind of reframe it in a new direction. So I've built V1, I've built turnarounds, I've done turnarounds. So I'm comfortable doing that. The break allows me to step back and say, okay, here are the things that I'm good at. Here's where I think I Here's where I want to spend the rest of my time. Um, and, and how do I bring value to the larger organizations and to the ecosystem? So that's another non-negotiable in my mind, right? That for myself is, I will, doesn't matter what my next role is, where, where I go next or what I do next. That element of ecosystem, working with the larger ecosystem and shaping it, Will continue, actually, uh, whatever shape or form, uh, as it, as the situation may look like. So I think the broader piece allowed me of taking that sabbatical, taking the break, allowed me to do a few things. Get comfortable with myself, you know. Take all my other background experiences and bring it together and say, what is it that I want to do next? It allowed me to get back to saying, you know what, I can operate as an individual contributor if need be. I can run large organizations if I want. So that opens up and it frees you up to think about things, other opportunities in very different ways. And the other piece is continuing to build your, your relationships with people, continuing to deepen that. See, at the end of the day, we can look back on our careers. We don't remember most of the work that we did, most of the projects that we worked on. But we do remember the people that we did. The people we worked with. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that level of clarity is what helps you to kind of move forward as well because you're clear in your mind saying that what is that you would want to do. I think to out of this, we talked about portfolio careers. We talked about uh, gap year. You did mention about the importance of going and talking to people. In some ways, I'll yeah. call it as mentors, coaches, uh, or whatever you would want to label them as. Your word of advice to a lot many people looking for mentoring support is what are those three or four critical ingredients to make mentoring successful. It's not about go seek a mentor. I think that is something that's very much out there. But where I see people not taking the full advantage of having that mentor is what to ask. How do you prepare to kind of, so in your own experience, Ram, how can one maximize the mentoring relationship? See, there are, there are different kinds of people. There are givers, there are takers. And there are some who do both, right? To me, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not a judgment thing, but uh, takers generally are out looking for answers for themselves. But when the situation, when the shoe is on the other foot, you don't find them anywhere. Okay? Um, givers are good souls who will give irrespective of what the situation is or who they're dealing with, right? I mean, they're very good at that. But to me, I think the most effective relationship is one which is symbiotic. Okay. Um, so approaching, so I, before you get into mentors or non-mentors and all that kind of stuff, I think the question is, how are you building a relationship with that with another person? Okay. What can you contribute to the dialogue that the other person can learn from as much as you want to learn from? And it, and even as you know, a lot of people obviously approach me to help, you know, to mentor them or whatever it is. But to me, I do a bit of a touchstone on this, you know, to understand. I can certainly contribute to them, obviously, otherwise they're not going to approach me. 
but what can I learn from the other persons? How can they contribute to me? Right? Uh, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your experience. There is always a learning that comes out of retirement. In fact, I enjoy, you know, I, I meet uh, and I spend time with new college grads in my office, not just when they get hired, but also, you know, kind of work, stay, stay in touch with them during their first few years of professional life. I do that not because, you know, it's a nice thing to do. I do that because there's some learning that comes to me also, because there's a fresh perspectives that come in. I mean, uh, it's always refreshing to deal with kids who are fearless <laughs> when they walk into your office and tell you that, hey, you know, you are, you are doing something wrong. You're not taking you about this. So, uh, so I think a good, effective mentor-mentee relationship starts with a, a relationship building exercise where both sides can say, hey, you know what? What can I learn from you? What can you learn from me? Okay. Then it opens up a much more effective future relationship with that person. And you may not tap into them all the time. But when the, when the need arises, it doesn't start from a dialogue of, hey, you know, I want mentorship. It starts from a thing saying, the comfort level builds that says, hey, you know what, so-and-so, you know, I need your help. You know, here's, here's where I'm struggling. Okay, And the barriers come down. So for an effective mentor-mentee relationship, those barriers have to be, have to come down. So again, it goes back to my point earlier on about relationship and trust. Because once, if those build, the conversation becomes easy, right? It, it also becomes much more natural in terms of how you engage with somebody and do that. So I think that's the way I think about it. So any any relationship that is a give and take, it always make for a good mentor-mentee relationship. Okay, there you go. Thank you so much on that. So Ram, we have been talking a lot about your career, career journey, uh, some learnings out of it. We'll slip into a segment where I call this as a power of three round. Well, we'll start off with something that you're very, very passionate about. Uh, I can see the library right behind you. So I'll start off with three book recommendations that had had an impact on you. You know, Shiga, that's the hardest thing to do. It's like asking you which is your left eye or right <laughs> eye is the, is the most effective. I, I don't know if I can pick out one or two. Or to make it easy, if no. you were to say... 2023 book recommendations. What you have read in 2023, if you can give us three from, from that list. You know, I'm, I'm currently reading a book on happiness. And the idea is that, you know, there's always this thought that achievement then drives happiness, right? You you achieve something and then you derive happiness out of it, success in career or whatever it is. And this is a theory that splits on its head that says, you know what, happiness precedes success. If you are comfortable with yourself, and all the things I just talked about, and I learned this later in life, in some sense, right? When I, once I started getting more comfortable with who I am, you know, in my relationships with my family or with my, you know, network, it allowed me to become, you know, in my mind, more successful for myself, okay? I think that's the theory of this book. And I, it was, a, it's a, not a very big book. Somebody gave it to me as a gift. I have been, you know, I just started reading the Elon Musk biography by, you know, Walter Isaacson. The other book that I read by Walter Isaacson was the Code uh, Code Breakers. Okay, it's about the whole mRNA and uh, you know uh, the the gene sequencing and it's you know it's an it was eye opening for me. I mean, I you know I I did last time I did biology was in high school mm -hmm. when I <laughs> in my twelfth standard, but I had moved far away from biology. But uh, this kind of piqued my interest uh, coming out of the pandemic and everything else. 
in terms of looking at uh, you know how how that whole thing evolved you know again this is another of those technologies which was on the periphery right i mean the whole gene sequencing thing and everything else was happening during the 80s and 90s uh, and i was in the us in those days so it was happening you, you could see it uh, kind of playing itself out but you didn't pay attention to it but now you know with my interest in deep tech which which we didn't talk about as much you know um these kinds of cross uh, pollination of various disciplines is starting to get more and more important so so i'm now trying to educate myself in some of those fields uh, starting to read being engaged with uh, you know I'm, uh, as part of mascom we have a number of community groups uh, one of which is a health tech group you know there's a bunch of doctors in it so and a bunch of technologists in it so you know i i am a lurker there you know i kind of sit and i read and <laughs> watch this these dialogues happening but it's very eye opening right where you have doctors and physicians and people on the ground who work with patients on a daily basis you know sitting on one island uh, and then you have technologists who are bursting at the seams with new ideas sitting on another island if you build a bridge and you start to see how the cross pollination starts to happen and ideas start to flow uh, and learning needs starts to happen you know from each other's perspective it's actually fascinating so uh, so we do <laughs> three pieces of advice that has helped you in your long career yeah i think one starts with saying get comfortable with who you are and i think that's many people have told me in the past and until i took the time to do it i think it uh, it was it was game changing for me personally got let let me get more more comfortable second is um, one of my mentors asked me what hobbies do you have at a time when i was struggling with my professional you know just commitments okay and it was a very interesting question because as a growing up you know i had a lot of other you know i used to play sports doing a bunch of other things somewhere in my professional journey those things had dropped off and i still read you know i did all that but that was not a hobby okay and uh, it was a wake up call because i i you know i while i listened to music i'm not i never really learned to play instruments or learned music formally or uh, i used to potter around with sketching and all that but i never i moved away from that so a lot of the things that you would do outside of your work and some people are lucky enough that they have stayed with it for me that was a wake up call okay so i said okay now let me let me step back and say this during that time i took my sabbatical as well um you know what kind of things interest you anymore and how do you kind of still stay with it so i think that's the second thing is um hobbies and things that you do outside of your professional work and part of it for me i think engaging with the ecosystem is also a bit of a hobby you know it has become that so that's the second thing that came up third is health you know uh, the wake up call of uh, you know you as they say you know things that are easy to ignore are the ones that you ignore first and uh, it's a bit of a wake up call about you know a few years ago where uh, well wishers and my doctor my family doctor said hey you know what i don't think you're looking at the things that, that you should be focused on from a health perspective as you as you're starting to age get a little older so i think that's been the other wake up call third one is on the health front are you eating right are you doing the right you know from an exercise perspective and then and then mental health i think the pandemic also has uh, um uh, has brought to light that it's not just about physical health that you need to focus on it's also about you know your mental health and getting comfortable so i think those would be the three things so we will not be able to do justice uh, by not talking about deep tech so we'll have to have a separate conversation around that but one thing i'll, I'll ask you about well, 
uh, one thing i'll ask you about that again in the power of uh, three round is what are the three deep tech companies or startup to watch out for yeah i i don't want to single them out because that be unfair to all the others i'll tell you where some of the interesting areas are coming okay. up and people can do their own you know uh, implications of this i think um, health is definitely a big area of energy you know i think indian companies indian startups there are a number of them which are emerging in that space or some some of them are scaling solving some really deep problems i mean it's, you know everything from cancer detection and you know um, reading mris to health to our heart and everything else that's one there are companies which are coming up solving some deep problems in the incurable bacteria space right these are these are not companies you would have associated from the indian origin but they are now stepping onto the world stage and solving these so health is definitely a big area emerging energy and climate tech uh, some very interesting companies that are coming up in that space which are solving problems and whether it is in as simple as hey you know what um, urban technologies to solve some of the problems for india which are also useful in other parts of the world to um, solving problems in energy uh, in battery technologies in you know of course i would put aspects of ev as part of the climate area but even more than that right solving problems in in pollution in air pollution air tracking all that kind of stuff so climate tech is another which has a direct implication on a social perspective the third area is on mobility and mobility in a broad sense whether it is space tech whether it is terrestrial you know autonomous vehicles robots whether they are drones drone technologies either hovering in the air or going under water some very interesting companies that are coming up in that space i mean i'm only picking three whereas agri tech and all these other things that come up but the thing that i love about deep tech and i just touch upon this we can always have a deeper conversation and why it has now you know made me a believer as well as uh, a proponent of it and if you may an evangelist of it is because other technologies and it's not to say others don't have societal impact i think societal impact of deep tech is a lot deeper and more ingrained you know in a world that is rapidly becoming you know highly populated huge amount of climate change driven by you know uh, various factors and we need to find other avenues to live to how the world would look like 100 years from now and that's where deep tech comes together because it has a societal impact it has a technology impact it has the cross pollination of bringing together multiple disciplines as they have evolved and how do you kind of bring them together into a much more effective solution and at scale for the market and for the and at scale absolutely i mean we are at about 8 billion population yeah right think about it you know the world is, has never seen this we have to feed them they have to have a livelihood they have to have so many implications and then of course you know there is also a proponents that the earth is we have outlived the earth we need to find other avenues in space you know colonization of mars or whatever right so so uh, so i think this is where deep tech all comes together and that's that's one reason why you know why ai is important and you know, it's very interesting ai just become foundation layer for deep tech you know just the way i think about this is ai by itself is useful and helpful but to me the ai becomes instead of a vertical it's a horizontal it is going to power the next generation of deep tech and societal impact in all these various domains that and that's what you know keeps me going now right like i said we had to do a full episode only on uh, deep tech so we'll definitely come back to you on that ram the last of the power of three round question here what are three micro experiments that you can recommend for our listeners one is i think if you have not yet started playing with uh, generative ai 
please get started because it's going to have an implication for everybody and it's getting more and more easy to easily available uh, you know uh, so that every consumer can get access to second i think you need to get much more savvy about cybersecurity in the in the context of evolving ai and everything else you know because it's a consumer problem mm. it is no longer an enterprise problem it's no longer everything else it's a consumer problem and right? you just have to open the newspaper on a daily basis and see you know every ad, the bad guys are always two steps ahead of the good guys right so so get a lot more savvy about technology irrespective of who you are at what age you are uh, you know you may choose not to use it that's okay but you're going to get touched by it whether you like it or not so it's no longer okay for people to you know take it for granted that you know cyber security is somebody else's problem it's not yours uh that's the second thing second area it's a my not a micro experiment in the way you define it but get a lot more uh, savvy about what these things are and what it how it's interacting third is you know get out of your silo if you are sitting in a silo get out build relationships with people get to know people who are not like you and uh, it is hard for sometimes for people right because they are very much straight jacketed you know i don't have time you know the biggest refrain i heard here from people is i'm so busy in my life that i can't i don't have time i would push against that because yes i'm not i'm not saying i can't obviously everybody has their life to live but it is not hard to carve out 5% 10% of your time for yourself okay irrespective of who you are it's not a it's not a gender thing it's a irrespective of who you are uh, irrespective of what you do right whether you're a professional non professional whatever you are take some time even if it's 10% of your time to do something outside of your life get to know some people outside of your life try to get involved in in uh, you know in some thing outside of things that you do on a day to day basis even if it's a social circle it's okay get out of that and it and it is fit to age it's not an age thing uh, you know there's some great work happening nowadays on helping senior citizens get connected back into social circles because as you age it gets harder and harder to form new relationships mm. and there are some really good uh, organizations that are coming up that are starting to connect people who are retired who are older who you know are more lonely to social circles where they can find people of similar bandwidth and wavelength and it has been known if you have watched the blue zones episodes uh, or read about it you see that social network is a key part of longevity yeah, and the re- right. recent who thing is loneliness is called as the next biggest uh, threat to mankind i saw that i saw that 70 and there is a you know and there is a flipping point between loneliness and being comfortable with being alone right, right? i think it's at yes. 60 65% or so, 75% or something of the time if you are lonely if you are alone then suddenly it flips over into becoming loneliness it is important um, and you know societal norms are changing right and particularly also in india and uh, you know the so i think it's important for people to be you know irrespective of what age you are starting to experiment with building that groups of people around you you know beyond that i think that's very critical to great call out there ram ram i would love to continue this conversation for a lot more time this has been just one fantastic uh, conversation thank you so much for sharing your insights Uh, before we wrap up uh, this show is all about creating ripples of inspiration what is your inspire someone today message to all the listeners out there 
Step out and do something different. Okay. Can't re-emphasize more. Step out, do something different. Break the status quo. Go out there. Do something else. On that note, Ram, thank you so much for sharing your life journey, career journey with me and my listeners. Appreciate your time. Thank you for listening into today's edition of Inspire Someone Today. It's been a privilege to bring in these conversations. If you like this episode and have any feedback or comments, do mail me at inspiresomeonetodaypodcast at the rate gmail.com. Inspiring someone is like creating ripples around us. If you like what you listen, feel free to share them and let's create ripples of inspiration. Do not forget to follow me on my Instagram handle at the rate inspiresomeonetodaypodcast for all the latest updates. This is Srikanth, your host, signing off. And until next time, keep inspiring.